You're listening to Good Done Well, a show that celebrates the impact of social innovators, impact investors, and entrepreneurs. Join us as we highlight some of the good being done in the world. Good Done Well is brought to you by Riddle, a platform for impact measurement. Learn more at riddle.ca. That's R-I-D-D-L dot C-A. Hello to our audience and welcome, June. Thank you. Thanks for being here with us today. We have Juno Sullivan. She's the CEO of London Early Years Foundation. And you can learn more about the foundation at leyf.org.uk. Over the past few years, the London Early Years Foundation has been recognized as one of the UK's most innovative foundations. June, can you tell us a little bit about the organization and its model? So we're a group of nurseries, 39 nurseries, and I I sort of reframed us from um, being a tiny, tiny charity many years ago into a social business because I couldn't see how uh, the traditional charity model could deliver the sort of impact that I wanted to have, which was to really address the rights of children, particularly from those from poor and disadvantaged backgrounds, to be able to access sustainable nurseries of really high quality. And it grieved me that poorer children were still accessing probably random and low-grade nurseries at the mercy of funding our um, sort of short-term policy, when actually the evidence shows that those children were the ones who would benefit the most from really great input in terms of teaching and learning. So that was the principle by which I tried to reshape the business. And so I did it in stages with the support of some great people around me. But it was like, how do you become an independent, standalone social business? So that first I was thinking, right, how do I bring in enough money to pay the staff? Then how do I bring in enough money to pay the rents and the staff? And then finally, how do I pay enough money to keep everything going and not be dependent on anyone? And that took me about um, probably three or four years to finally get to a point where everything we did would be a standalone. And what that means is we created a business model that subsidizes from fees the children who otherwise couldn't afford to pay. So we worked out how many ordinary fee-paying children we would need and then how we would use the profit from that to ensure that every other, uh, every pound was be spent on a place for a child either in need or in disadvantage of some level. So that was really the journey. And then we've, like any business, we've shaped it and amended it and responded to economic circumstances so that now 10 years down the line, we're pretty comfortable with what we have to do to ensure that it happens and to replicate the model and to grow the business. Although I sit here in the middle of COVID-19, trying to imagine how I'm keeping the business on a steady course when we don't have many children attending at the moment and a large number of our staff are therefore in you know unable to work yeah it's certainly interesting times for all business owners and in particular for social ventures who have of course at the core of what they're trying to achieve is a, a social mandate as well as keeping the lights on i can appreciate how tough that mm-hmm. is right now the the model that you've outlined uh whether you're looking at scale right now during right now or not due to what's happening. Can you tell us a little bit more about the unique 
programs that you've been offering. So specifically, I know you've received some media attention for the bike program, but can you speak a little bit more to how you've created a curriculum in a really interesting environment for the children? What struck me all those years ago was that you could develop a business model that was social in its purpose and structured so that actually it could guarantee a means of targeting and supporting those very children that you felt needed the support. But it would be only half the job done if the pedagogy within which it was framed wasn't appropriate. So I spent 10 years of my life studying and looking and imagining and creating and amending and reviewing a pedagogy, which is really defined by how we support the children to learn. So it's how do we lead the children to learn? That's what it means. And I have worked um, this into seven strands, and those seven strands have to reflect every aspect of our business. So the first strand is leadership, you know, leading for excellence. We know that great organizations have leadership right, running right through it. Leadership for a social justice is the thing that interests me. And therefore, whether you're a junior leader in a baby room or you're the CEO, that every decision you have to make has to reflect that level of leadership and the philosophy that goes behind it, which is, of course, in our case, the social enterprise model. The next thing you have to think about is what are the subjects that you teach? And so... We like looked at really what difference does leading um, well and teaching well make to children who have come from a more challenging background. And we found there were two main levers that made the difference to a child from starting from a more disadvantaged perspective to a child from a more comfortable professional home. And they were all wrapped in language. And so really we built the whole pedagogy and and sort of the curriculum that's part of that pedagogy, either means and the what we would teach to extend language, to ensure that whatever we did, language would be at the heart of it. And that all of the other subjects, whether it was um, maths or music or creativity or any of those things, were actually filtered through the extension of language. And that was really significant for us. And that's often described as our cultural capital. The second element of that that really mattered a great deal was the social capital, the means by which we created networks, both internally and externally. So for me, the nursery is a sort of catalyst for community engagement. So in terms of uh, the the social capital and the, the cultural capital, that was very significant. And the way we developed our programs around that and the way we thought about that was very important. Then the next thing we realized is that your your environment is very is very significant in the way you teach. It's, in fact, it's the third teacher. And for many children in poorer nurseries, they make do with what people have as their cast-offs or hand, handouts. And for me, that was fundamentally wrong. We needed to think about what was the right environment for those children. So even if you were operating from a not perfect building, the inside should be beautiful. Uh, should create the space for children to really be able to be powerful in their learning and in their interpretation of what the environment means for them. And then, of course, harmonious relationships were pretty significant to us. You know, how do you build bridges in quite often alien communities, quite often in communities where they haven't really had a voice or been listened to particularly? So what can a nursery do in a way that greets and one way of doing that is to make sure you employ people from the the area, have apprentices from the area, and build a kind of uh, mm. connection through your social capital with that. The next thing has to be safe, fit, and healthy. 
Child obesity, as you probably know, is a pretty big issue across the world. Um, and in London, it's significant that the children from poorer families are more likely to be obese. In fact, the anticipation is that one in five children by the time they reach the top of primary school will be at least identified as obese with all the attendant issues that come with that, whether it's uh, cardiovascular illnesses, diabetes, uh, you know, as, and so on and so forth. And so it struck me that one area that we hadn't really targeted was the chefs. So nobody had really thought about the contribution a chef could make to supporting children guaranteed really good food in the nursery and maybe reaching out to their parents and building a bridge. So I created the the first UK chef academy for staff working with children up to eight, whether it's a nursery or a school or any of that kind of environment. And with it, I wrote a qualification specifically around that that hadn't been done before. Because, you know, in a way, you, you had to give at least some structure to our create a sort of system and where you could maybe make some changes. And now we're we're rolling that out to other places so that other other chefs can know what good food looks like, know about portion control, know about the balance of how you can create really great menus for children and cakes and everything else with no sugar and no salt, you know, and how do you build that bridge into the home where you support parents, many of whom are not particularly well off to create healthy food that's going to, in a way, mitigate the risks of obesity from um, from what they currently serve. The last area, the second last area is the home learning environment. And right now that's proving to be particularly helpful in the way it's supporting families who can't come to nursery because of COVID-19. Um, and it's an open access, uh, free service to whoever um, wants to use it. But really it's about building the sort of playful partnership of parenting rather than pushing people into a highly stressed kind of circumstances of becoming, trying to become a teacher. Um, and it's really around finding different routes into using the routine and the home environment as a, as a sort of a learning space with their children, where you're continuing to kind of build harmonious relationship in what is often a uh, stressful mm -hmm. environment. If you imagine how many children we take from disadvantaged and kind of um, uh, more kind of um, sort of alienated communities, that's quite a lot of children. And they're not going to be living in a comfortable home with a garden and, you know, a lot of support and plenty of food in the fridge mm -hmm. sort of environment. And then finally, the one that really matters a great deal and really helps to build social capital is what we call the multi-generational approach. And I was very particular about that because... People often, well, people refer sometimes to this as intergenerational. And what happened with that is it become very framed within the old and young. Whereas for me, uh, multi-generation was important because there is something to be said about engaging with people at every different level of their, uh, of their sort of life cycle. Um, and loneliness has, you know, peaks in two areas. Uh, one in terms of bereavement, which is more likely to happen to older people. And the second is the second highest uh, loneliness is when you have a baby and you're very alienated and frightened and out of your comfort zone very quickly and hormonally very challenged as well at the time. And so um, it struck me that how do we create bridges in and out of this for families and how does that enrich the experiences of children? And if you take it back to cultural capital, there's often a deficit model around cultural capital where it's a sort of middle-class kind of ambition where things have been framed around what is perceived as good within that kind of middle-class lens. 
And actually, my view is that everyone has cultural capital. And the fact that some is less appreciated than others does not take away from the fact that it's there. And when you work with multi-generational, whether you're working with grandparents or adolescent children or, you know, uh, the local um, community fair or whatever it is you're doing, you're building the cultural capital and reshaping the city in terms of what the future looks like for those children. You're finding, you're helping them find a place in a city that's often, you know, very changing and very, um, there's a great deal of churn in, in, in the city that, you know, is made up of so many different communities. For example, in Leaf alone, we have 102 spoken languages um, and over half our staff will come from different communities. And that's, for me, a good thing. Uh, it's a, a great advantage for a child to have more than one language from the time they're little. And um, it's a great advantage to be able to employ and create a local sort of economy in areas that may well be poorer uh, by employing people, by opening nurseries there, by helping people to work and by just creating a kind of network. Uh, whether it's with the schools, like we work with a charity called Teens and Toddlers, where we take yeah sort of fourteen year olds into the nurseries and they um they become a buddy to one of the children, and the intention is that they understand the complexity of of under, of of how children develop and the needs that they have. So to detract them really from following a pattern of maybe uh, teenage pregnancies are um the kind of measures that uh, James Heckman, uh, you know, the um, Nobel Prize winning economist who could connect the advantage of early intervention through nursery and early early services through early years with more positive outcomes at the other end, including a reduction in teenage pregnancies. So, so that sort of shapes the seven elements of the pedagogy. And that actually is how we operate and how we work and how it's not just about what the, what doing that in the nursery, it's about doing that at every level, whether it's uh, expansion, growth, contracts, all of those things are woven through those seven pedagogical lenses. What an incredible model where, you know, the, the core focus of and, and the why you started was around poverty and working directly with children. But the ripple effect of the impact that you've had has been on employment, obesity, uh, other health issues that would include loneliness, um, obviously building your community and 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 gaining cultural capital within the city and, and broader communities. I think that's it's really an impactful model. Can you t- give us some stats or metrics that you feel highlight LEAF's impact? So uh, in terms of children's benefits, so one of the things we do to measure, uh, and we've developed this ourselves, to measure the children's um, progress, given that they can often start from a more deficit model, is that we have a thing called the LEAF Pedagogical Development Scales. And so we've used all the theories international and national theories around how uh, you collect information about children's progress. And we've created that for every nursery and every term the staff evaluate themselves against these sort of this scoring system, um, which has got each of the seven areas of the pedagogy as an indicator that we measure. And, um, and it's very much a reflective tool, but it's a very useful one to be able to see and track children's progress so that, you know, we can see their acquisition of language. We can see, for example, children who've come in with identified needs. We can track whether they're um, being supported sufficiently to see a movement up or down. We can track sort of levels of obesity in terms of they've now eating with us 
three meals a day, the impact that's having. So we use that, um, we call it the LPDS, the LEAF Pedagogical Development Scales, to do quite a lot of tracking against each child in the nursery. And that's generally around 4,700 children over the period of the year, you know, some part-time, some split places and all of that. So that's one of the bigger sort of tracking sort of methods we have developed to align to our pedagogy. So it's not simply a delivery model. We do also um, collect some quantitative and uh, qualitative evidence to support that. Yeah, it's certainly both quantitative and qualitative data and and content is required in order to really understand uh, and contextualize the progress and impact. Do you have a, a story that you can tell us that you believe highlights the impact of LEAF? Yes, I mean the uh, if I if if you were to imagine if I had a slide in front of you, just imagine this this four quadrants. So our social impact is measured in four quadrants really. The first is the amount of time the children arrive. So obviously that's an easy one to measure in that they have we really have to have children for fifteen hours a day uh, a week rather. That's that's the evidence generally across the world says. More than that, maybe not so important. Less than that, certainly important, but at least get 15 hours. And when it really starts to have an impact, you then look at, we call that a sort of dosage. So the dose that the child needs a week is 15 hours. And the duration over that period tends to be 36 months. So dosage and duration. And we struggle a bit with 36 months because of external policies, such as children going to school very early, being taken out of the nurseries, just, just reaching three, but also other factors. But that's a major factor. But other factors are, with, you know, the cost of childcare and be able to access it from the earlier stage. And then the fact that people move because London is an expensive city and rents are high. And so there's, you know, we have a number of external challenges, that means that they don't always stay 36 months. The uh, third quadrant is, as I explained, the LPDS, because we really have to measure quality and the experience the children are having. And there are some there are some other me- measurements of which I'm really proud of. And one of them is that we have now developed the LEAF degree. So we know that qualifications and quality is often driven in the same uh, in the same on the same pathway. So that if you have better quality staff, better qualified staff, you tend to get a better outcome for both the staff, the children and the organization. So we've partnered with the University of Wolverhampton to create the Leaf Pedagogy sort of module as part of the BA in Early Childhood Studies. So we're very proud of that. And, and my task next is to write the MA to go with that. Um, and then the fourth quadrant is the home learning environment, which, again, I've, I've referenced earlier. And so the four of them tend to combine to be what we would call the measure of social impact. So the stories from that are things like children who've come to us who are now our apprentices, who's, you know, who've gone through that whole journey and we've supported them and they've come into us as young apprentices. Children who've come to us with very poor language who are now doing better in school than children who've gone there already with already starting at a a higher level than them in the first instance. Parents who've now working because they couldn't have worked before and who have, you know, developed skills and sort of confidence to be able to go and um, become graduate in their own world. Some of them now work for us. And so that there's a kind of a journey that you can, you know, you can you can follow in terms of their pathway. 
very, very many individual stories about children who've come from very difficult backgrounds where we've been able to uh, input and they have. we've helped the family to find housing, to uh, go through some really difficult times like ill health and, um, you know, financial disarray in the which has caused complete confusion in the family all of those things there are many stories that follow this through but the the best journeys really are when the children have now become the apprentices who will become the staff who will be the future of leaf really and um, and take us forward in in that way what a wonderful story so much impact has been achieved in such a short period of time can you tell us a bit more about your long-term goals? What what do you hope to see from the organization in the next five years? You know, Janelle, one of the things that often depresses me is that you can never be a prophet in your own land. You know, mm-hmm. people don't always see the good of what you're doing, even though people coming from all over the world come and visit us and can see what we're doing. But sometimes you're, you know, around the corner, they don't get it. So I suppose what I would like to do and what I would like is to continue to push for the fact that our model is a very interesting, positive and supportive model and actually can demonstrate real improvement for children. So, for example, you know, against our, you know, the the sort of defined judgments made by Ofsted, which is our regulatory body, there's about 20 percent of them are outstanding across the board, you know, and there's 60 percent of the leaf nurseries are in that position. And that's nurseries that are in pretty tough areas. So, again, pushing the boundary about what quality needs to look like and how it can improve. And we do know that where there's an association between good quality education for children, there tends to be a better outcome for them in the longer term. So I think for us, it's really getting people to really understand and appreciate our model and take it on so that other people can do it. And, and I could, you know, really replicate it across uh, as, a, as, a, as a sort of structural model or a systemic model, really across the UK and beyond. Then the second thing is we have a, a fabulous little academy which is uh, delivering all sorts of training, like I told you, in our degree, but also our apprentices. Um, one of my apprentices came to me 16 years ago and went through the ranks. She started as um, a little young, young, terrified apprentice, cried all the way through her interview. I'll never forget her. And she's now just been appointed, having become a deputy and a manager and a senior manager. She's now the first LEAF uh, apprentice manager to look after our apprentices and develop them. And I'd like to see more of that. Um, and our academy is really made up of the training and the opportunities to action research that we do a great deal of. Um, and, um, you know, and is led by great team, many of whom already worked for me and have come through the ranks themselves. And I think we'd like to be able to sort of open our doors to people from outside of LEAF to, to experience um, what we deliver inside LEAF. So that's a real big uh, issue for us. Um, it's not an issue, a big uh, challenge for us, but we'd like to be able to do that. And then really what I'd absolutely love to do is our UK uh, Chef Academy to really expand that and then ultimately also expand our home learning environment into a kind of virtual parenting academy built around what I would call the playful parent a partnership model rather than uh, a sort of um, kind of more uh, sort of transactional relationship where, you know, parents have problems and we help them to solve them, but much more around building a kind of confidence around having fun with your children and um, delighting in the experience of being a parent. Those are 
quite ambitious goals, although none of them seem like they're unrealistic and likely happening in the near future. We're definitely looking forward to seeing the expansion of your your model with the daycares and um, the way that you work with children in poverty, as well as it'd be really neat to see the Chef Academy expand and obviously the home learning uh, supports as well. And hopefully not just across the UK, but globally uh, as well. Thank you so much for speaking with us and our audience today, June. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. Good Done Well is hosted by me, Janelle Sobe, CEO of Riddle, a platform for companies, nonprofits, and investors to measure their impact through data. Check out riddle.ca, that's R-I-D-D-L.ca for more details. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please share with your colleague. We'll catch you next time. <laughs>